You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. This is Eli Steenlidge, and with me is... Jeremy Holiday, And we are back for part two of our year-end wrap-up. Part the second. We're continuing our conversation about the best films of the year, and we're back also with our guest, Blake Goebel. Blake is the uh, senior staff writer at Consequences Sound, writing about film. Um, so we're just going to jump back into our original conversation as we had to split this up. Because it, it went a little long, as, yeah, we, we talked as it for does like every year. Two and a half-ish hours. Something like that. I don't think you're supposed to tell them that. All right, so uh, enjoy the show. Another one I wanted to bring up is Annihilation. And I'm interested to hear, because this is kind of farther down on your list too, uh, Blake. And this was earlier in the year, and Jeremy and I definitely give it a full conversation if you want to go back and listen to that podcast. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, yeah. We maybe even brought it up another time on the show. I know we definitely had some like off-air conversations, follow-up conversations to that, because yeah. you also read the book. Yeah, yeah, I read the whole um, series. But uh, I think that's still one that's really stuck with me, and if we're trying to make any sort of segue from First Reformed, I think it's like endings of the films that have... <laughs> that are sort of open. And I don't mean the actual, the very final scene of Annihilation, because I actually didn't love that. That was a little too, like, here's a little twist. Can you figure it out? But more like the, <laughs> uh, the sort of dancing being that she encounters and yeah. goes down into this hole and all that sort of um, mysterious ending that really took it to another level for me, I think. Um, again, it was almost sort of like a transcendent moment again, um, because I, I don't think I got it all. Um, and, and for me, I think some people might've just kind of felt like, uh, he's just reaching, um, not quite sure what they're <laughs> trying to convey, you know, we're just trying to sound deep. But for me, I think it did sort of spin off into all these other ideas of what that, that could mean and made me really explore what was going on in the film. Um, for what it's worth. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have my movie ranking and whatever, and I, I, I gave this an arbitrary three stars and let me, let me explain this to you. I would give the first hour of the movie like two stars because I was so dissatisfied and disinterested. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second half of the movie, I would give five stars. I think it was nice. absolutely phenomenal. That's, mm. that's the stuff that I like too, because I'm like, yeah, let's all take some DMT bro and kind of <laughs> go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. No, um, I think Garland is a very, like very selfishly i loved ex machina because he took really really heady sci-fi ideas and was very good at articulating them through actually well-written conversations among characters but he also kind of had the nerve and quirk to do little twist surprises the disco dance scene the sudden realization that there's no drinking involved yeah. uh the casual non sequiturs of that movie like i i think he's a really smart guy and he knows how to do little things to shake up your expectations. Mm. Annihilation, it, he is reaching, but I also kind of like how, how hard he does reach within that second hour because, um, what's the old Blade Runner uh, expression? More human than human. Yeah. Um, I'm generally not interested in like the simulacrum technology and uh, artifice and mimicking people, but I am fascinated about like human interaction with the possibility of extraterrestrial life. I mm -hmm. complained about it, the movie Life last year, 
sticking to trope. It's still yeah. alien, just in a slightly different bio-organic form. But yeah. I'm like, but what about the ethical... Um, what about the moral ethical uh, uh, complications? What are the legal ramifications of something like this? What if it's something beyond comprehension with limbs and it's something kind of what if it's this giant Dolby Atmos digital, uh, you know, goop display that shakes your theater as it starts to morph and try to mimic human nature? And credit to his sound designers and visual effects team for at least trying to contextualize and visualize these ideas in abstract uh, form, in screensaver form, if you <laughs> want to be pushy. But it's just, it's its like, this is a 4K ultra-looking uh, expression yeah. of, of heady sci-fi ideas, and I thought that was very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard in sci-fi anymore to sort of... Um surprise people or do something yeah. unique because we can basically make anything we want now and there is a lot of like generic effects for things out there these days um, mm -hmm. mostly in our superhero films yeah. and so I think it was uh, he's good at giving us those unusual visuals that I think took me in another direction yeah I mean so I mean so I first saw Annihilation um, and I liked it I told a friend of mine about it and they're like oh you should read the books you know, it's really good, weird sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And so she bought me um, the first book, and I read it, and then I read the other two on my Kindle, in case anyone cares. <laughs> um, and um, I and actually, coming back to it now, um, and, 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 and well, first of all, I realized that like, like the Annihilation movie encompasses elements of all three of the stories. Mm -hmm. They're not nearly all as good as the first one. Mm -hmm. But I, um, I think one of the challenges for Alex... Um, is that like the Annihilation books, uh, the first book and the concept is kind of great, mm -hmm. but as they go along, they don't, it, they don't hold up. But by mm -hmm. the time you get to the end, you're like, what? <laughs> um, and, and so I, I honestly think he sort of captures the, the best mood of the best moments of the first book, um, in the movie. And even though he changes things, I mean, there's just some stuff that, like, that, that even I think the author would. I mean, I've never spoken to him. Um, Vandermeer but, is this yeah, name? yeah, Jeff Vandermeer. Okay, um, but I, I think he would at least recognize that there's some sort of like haunting genius in the way in which we enter and interact with this zone place mm -hmm. um, that he himself doesn't fully have a grasp <laughs> of. Um, and, and I think Not that to talk about the zone again, stalker with guns, yeah, 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 yeah. all over again, yeah, guys. Yeah. Um, the theme tonight, yeah. Uh, but the, I mean, there's, and I think I mentioned this the first time I talked about. It. I mean, there's something about there's something for me as a viewer watching this like this perfect wilderness um, be strange. Mm. Um, and I mean, the, the thing that's because it, it, it's the same because it, it's it is environmental. Because um, in one important fact that happens in the in the in the book, um, which doesn't get totally translated into the film, is that this place is expanding, and it'll eventually cover the entire Earth. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's something that people that work in the organization know. Yeah. Um, and they're just trying to deal with. Also, there's like all kinds of crazy stuff in the books too. But um, when they when they go into this place and encounter, because you expect it's going to be strange and foreign. And it, in some sense, is, mm -hmm. but it's also, like, physically beautiful. It, it, it just reminds me so much of, like, the shots in the early first two seasons of The Walking Dead where you have, like, beautiful skies with 
birds in them but no planes mm. and then you come down to like another like a, a zombie eating a human you know a zombie eating another zombie eating a human being and blowing <laughs> up eating a cat you know watching the film and i think certainly towards the mid and end and i would agree with blake about that uh it creates this fairly unique feeling mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in me as a viewer yeah i'm fascinated i'm it's i'm kind of scared because it's 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 so strange and it's not like there's no jump scares really like that's not the kind of thing but it's it's so both interesting and perplexing and dangerous at the same time that i i I don't really record in my emotional memory having the same kind of reaction to something else like nothing else has made me feel quite as squeamish yeah because you really have no idea what you're going to expect is it good is it bad you know like and you get the sense that it it is neither of those categories really apply to this thing um and i think it is like that a little bit you know like funny visual effects that she experiences this sort of swirl of things yeah which you're not quite sure how you feel about yeah and then you get like a sort of non-computer effect basically but like just as weird yeah and i think it was that like that transition that made you not sure how to feel about these things you know because it is much more visceral when you experience this sort of dark being and and and, and i think i mean part of what i liked about it was uh i'm just gonna i don't know if this totally it totally works for y'all but like in, in 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 2001 um a space odyssey yeah like it gets really effing weird like mm-hmm. it, it it takes weird and goes on this exponential curve yeah. so that like it gets so weird there's literally nothing else that can be shown. <laughs> it's a baby in yeah, space. It's a baby in, yeah. Can like, I just say I love that this is the third podcast I've been on where we talked about <laughs> 2001 and I'm so happy to be yeah. here for it. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> in, that, in fair terms, like no, I totally get what you're going at. Please, yeah. And then in Annihilation, like it, it doesn't take that exponential curve. Mm. Like it, it, it's almost linear. Like it keeps like you know it, it sort of the rate of weirdness increases towards the end yeah but like i i i never feel like oh my god what a what is that but 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 i'm it feels like i'm it has just the right amount of fascination Mm -hmm. that i'm totally sort of transfixed at watching this thing yeah whatever it is which is both visually designed interesting and totally unlike what i had expected to find there it's not Mm -hmm. a duplicate of a human being it's not an army of clones it's not a bunch of zombies it's not a crystal it's whatever this swirling mass is um and i felt like it was i mean it was such a good payoff Mm -hmm. um or it felt like an appropriate Payoff, payoff yeah. for that amount of stuff because like even in soccer which i love like wow like by the end like we are like strange philosophizing out the wazoo and <laughs> like it's hard to keep up with like what visual metaphor is indicating what in the end right. uh, which you know it, like when i first saw it like i just sort of did i blink for the last hour i don't know <laughs> yep. um but you know that was also i think like 19 or something um but seeing this film uh and it also i mean in terms of your standard earlier blake of like memorability like Mm-hmm. I haven't really, I mean, there's very few things, um, like very few modern sci-fi films that ever capture that same kind of mm. feeling. I yeah. mean, the, the, the moment that I that I would sort of draw that's most similar to me um, is like the very beginning of the movie Alien. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's just because of like the way the sound works, because like it's broken up and there's the storm yeah. and you're not quite sure where you are or, you know, like, or, mm. or what's going on. And, you know, almost anything could sort of come out of that 
that digital noise, you know, as you've been disoriented. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I, I feel a little bit of pity for Garland because we're throwing out Stalker, we're throwing out Kubrick, we're yeah, throwing yeah. out Alien. Like, Some big it's going to be, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's it's going to be hard to kind of like come out of the shadow of, uh, you know, strong reference points and very yeah, popular yeah. culture and entertainment. But at the same time, to that point of memorability, like he synthesized the stuff together. I've never seen a Southern Gothic flavored science fiction film yeah. like this, at least that I can think of an all female led one, which is also something to be kind of grateful for. Yeah. And, you know, I believe it's the same team who worked on ex machina and won the, uh, the Oscar for visual effects that worked on this. Yeah. I, felt like they were really working their asses off to at least present the new and yeah. that's kind of like the big yep. theme of the movie like something new and hard to explain is happening but we're and that's almost like a privilege unto its own right um mm -hmm. to see something new and unusual and hard to comprehend and when people are like i sure was scratching my head at the end of that movie i'm like good good that means it was doing its job to at least that's exactly what they wanted you to do yeah 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 um Let's transition to Black Klansmen because I think we kind of have to talk about this. Um, at least currently, I know things um, can shift, but it's on the top of Blake's list. And I think for me, one reason I want to talk about it is because I didn't specifically kind of number my list. And I wasn't mm -hmm. sure after initially seeing it, like, how high I would put it or where I would put it on a list. And I think it... It's before or after Ant-Man and the Wasp? <laughs> yes, of course. And Aquaman, yeah. Aqu Aquaman. I didn't actually see Aquaman. Aquaman. But I saw Aquaman. It just made a lot of money. It just somehow made a lot of money, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think he's doing on purpose sort of this contrasting, this juxtaposition of different things in the film. Like, it, in many ways, it's a very, like, mainstream, funny, entertaining film. Um, sort of working in in a specific genre but then mm -hmm. like there are some very sort of in your face moments in the film that you sort of have to deal with and some and some of the weird Spike Lee too which I, I always appreciate these little like surreal sort of moments uh, the one that stuck out to me is when the, it's at this like uh, black student group and um, somebody's giving a speech and, and people are listening and he sort of like shows uh, people's faces um, in the crowd, but on this sort of black... in darkness with overhead lighting. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and they're I sort of that. almost like yeah. floating in space around each other, um, and, and it's sort of like a very weird moment to kind of show. But it, it definitely takes you to a different place than how you would view that normally. And, and I always appreciate when he does those things, and I don't think he's always been working in that mode um more recently but then there's other other times where it's like very funny but you're also laughing at sort of these white supremacists and um which you're supposed to be laughing at but you're it, it's a very weird take because you're you're looking at it through a few different lenses and a, a few different characters eyes which is kind of like the conceit of the movie is this, this sort of code switching um, between the characters, but uh, I think it, it sort of indicts us as the viewers in sort of laughing at it and being sort of um, uh, sickened by it at the same time. 
um, sickened and implicit. You should have yep. been taking this a little more seriously is yeah. one of the takeaways I got from that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and I wasn't quite sure what to think about it sometimes. Um, I'm not going to get his name right uh, off the hand. Um, but the main the main character who, who initiates this, uh, who is on the phone with the white supremacist. But he gives sort of like I like his performance, but it's so sort of like casual and sort of loose in many ways that he sort of just seems like, why wouldn't I do this? This is like a fun thing for me to do. The way it's played feels that um, threatened by it in any ways, which is sort of makes it more fun. But I, I don't know. I was sort of struggling with some of those things at the same time. But uh, it sounds like it really impacted you, Blake. Yeah. Um, so for what it's worth, formally, this this film is a film of too many tones for some yeah. uh, some people. And I, I like the movie, not to cop the old adage from uh, uh, Spike Lee's by any 40 acres and a mule film works logo, by any means necessary, y'all dig, was kind of the log line. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, like, never has that phrasing been more true with Black Klansman, because as you said, it's this just very wily juxtaposition of black exploitation homage to modern day uh, political cautionary mm-hmm. fable and everything in between. And it was just one of those movies where, yeah, um, even if there was a logistical quibble or the tonal shift is a little jarring, I never lost sight of why we were here or mm. why I was so compelled or entertained by any given scene or moment. And this is a movie that was white hot for me when I saw it over the summer. Um, I've seen it two times since then. And I honestly, I just, I really admire um, its ability to kind of just, be all over the place in this fashion but it also gels in a way that i just still don't think i fully understand but really appreciate um like some of the best uh, spike lee films malcolm x uh 25th hour do the right thing uh he overreaches but Mm -hmm. in that overreach he's kind of putting all this best material together in here like malcolm x um you know, there's footage of Rodney King juxtaposed with zoot suits, and it's like, no, 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 it's all, it all kind of makes sense oh, in the end because we, yeah. Are, well, yeah, we're, we're, you know, living through and reliving history in different kinds of components and styles for how the politics of representation matter. So even through this black exploitation film, there is a certain element of black empowerment, but this harsh, deeply, like gallows humor and to hard to take seriously because it's true component of this shit happens all the time. We haven't learned from our mistakes. We haven't taken Mm -hmm. some of these people seriously. Like, I think it kind of one scene that sums up is like Felix, the, um, the very, the, the, the goateed mustachioed KKK member who kind of sounds a little like this with his wife in bed as they're doing soft patter to each other about how excited they are to kill black people. And I'm like, that's why we kind of get lost in the focus like some people think oh it's just a couple talking privately in their home like no these are deeply horrifying thoughts that these Mm -hmm. people have and are ready to act upon and another thing that this movie like i thought it was really funny i thought it was really exciting i thought it was very scary the other thing too is i i have to admit there were two uh scenes where i just was kind of jaw agape at their raw power that juxtaposition of Harry Balafonte speaking about the lynching of a young black man mm-hmm. as a result of fervor after the original birth of a nation. 
juxtaposed with the clan ceremony. Watch uh, where they watch movie, yeah. And that affected me in a way that I I haven't been affected in a long time. I consider myself a you know a novice film historian at best, mm-hmm. and I've always been of the mind that the history matters, that form, process, context, all this stuff matters. And I'm willing to kind of say, well, the birth of a nation is super ugly, but let's talk about epic filmmaking for a second. This yeah. is the first movie I've seen in a long time that actually makes a compelling case to destroy. A piece of art to me personally. A, a, mm. I, I consider myself a preservationist and an anti-censorship kind of person, but I'm like, maybe we just can get rid of artwork like Birth of a Perfect. Nation. Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe it's just not contributing anything but hatred and animosity and like you know white lightning out of the worst of people. Mm. And I was just overcome with like a sense of guilt for kind of parading like, well, it's the history for so many years. Um, And it all comes to a head in that final moment. Like if you think that we're done here, remember, nothing is ever over. And this kind of stuff goes all the time. I know it's super over the head, which like hammer over the head, which irked enough people reasonably. So but for people like me as well, it's just this sad galvanizing reminder that you can't you know, lose focus at all. And it's kind of a stressful trying message to convey, but it's a very potent one as well. Yeah. I mean, I was, um, not, not quite by the end with the Charlottesville footage, Mm -hmm. uh, real footage, but I think there's one other sort of like little conversation in a hallway. Um, and I was like, Oh, he is directly referencing like what's happening right now. In our country. The, uh, the police officer saying you think that, yeah, yeah, yeah I know yeah. exactly what speech you're talking about. Yeah. And I was like, uh, that's a little on the nose. Um, Extremely. Yeah. But then I was like, with that last footage, and I was like, oh, he's going to do this. But then, like, as it kind of kept going, I was like, you know what? This is going to get some portion of just like mainstream regular audiences going to their multiplex. And all the better for him, like, making this point to that audience, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, in the end, pretty serious stuff. Totally serious. And and those connections need to be clearly made. And I think the other thing you're talking about in that birth of the nation scene is like the Adam Driver character. And I felt this a few times mm-hmm. when he's sort of infiltrating and they do a good job of just sort of showing his face and sort of and I, you know, like was going back and forth between like seeing it through him and his perspective. And I thought he was just going to like, I can't do this anymore. You know, like he was going to flip out yeah. on them or something. And and then him sort of going along with it, it. It's just like a very mixed feeling that you're getting by seeing it through played out through those characters, which I think is really fascinating and, and was well put together. And especially kind of showing that editing. But um, yeah, I, I think ultimately I came down on those multiple levels, those mixed emotions and feelings and styles, um, I think are to its credit. Uh, and it's definitely one of the more interesting things he's done in a while. Yeah, no, for sure. So uh, let's keep going. And I know uh, Jeremy want to talk about maybe a couple of documentaries and for sure, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which I have not actually seen. I'm it's just fine. Gonna con- I thought it was fine. Confess to you guys that I was very scared of the puppets on yeah, you Mr. Say, Rogers. Yeah. But I did always enjoy the just like Mr. Rogers portion 
of it, but what really stood out to you, Jeremy, about it? Oh, well, gosh, Eli. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I mean, full disclosure, like I grew up near Pittsburgh, so like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood mm. was a, a big, he, he was ours. The actual neighbor. Yeah. We were like very proud of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't even know how to start. I mean, in, so like the things that I, I mean, there's nothing about the film that's like uh, the style of the film or its mm. presentation that's particularly novel. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of what I like about it is sort of the content and how they choose to tell the story. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, um, I mean, it, it, it's not, uh, well, I think it goes like this. Um, I, I, I have sort of tired of sensationalization of anything. Mm. Um, and like, and I love a good documentary, but I mean, e- even starting as far back as when I started paying attention to like when Born into Brothels won that, you know, mm-hmm. um, like I, if it, I think a documentary should sort of, for me, oftentimes, like look and feel, um, or have a look and feel that sort of echoes the the reality of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the method of presentation of Won't You Be My Neighbor sort of fits absolutely perfectly <clears throat> with like what they're talking about. Um, and I also think that I, there's just, I mean, you know, so they make it in 2018, you know, like well, there's no particular reason why it happens to happen, have to happen no. this year. Yeah. Um, also, full disclosure, Francois Clemens, who plays Officer Clemens, was my like college um, <laughs> choir director. So ah. I have a, I'm a big fan ah. of him as an individual. Um, but I, I just the experience that I had like at the end again, like because most of the movie keeps you in this world, which is about Mr. Rogers and 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 his world, and mm-hmm. and, and it, it was just. It, the two things that I want to say that were most important to me were one, um, I didn't realize how timely many of the th- the sh- shows that I had seen on reruns when I was a kid mm-hmm. about the uh, like the issues of the time. Like I, I I never understood that like as people were talking about the segregation of swimming pools, he was putting his feet in a a pool with Officer Clemens, mm. you know, and that when kids were worried about yeah, war, yeah. he was talking about war. Like mm. I didn't. Um, cause it's the kind of thing that like, you know, and like, I don't know, I you might not have gotten mm-hmm. it from some of our podcasts, but I've, I'm sort of officially done with the internet in general. Um, like, cause if it, God bless you, yeah. seriously, I mean, because if Mr. Rogers, like I, I could just imagine the Twitterverse explosion when like Mr. Rogers, like, like. Because he would probably invite, like, an immigrant kid onto his show <laughs> from Syria and talk about right. their experience. And he'd be like, I bet you were really scared when the bombs were falling. Do You, mm. you know, and, like, everyone... And people the, would say that is a false flag operation. Yeah, yeah, that's actor. right. I mean, like, the yeah, world would... Yeah, and, yeah. and so, like... It's, it's disheartening. So yeah. he, he clearly exists in a different time. And, mm. and I, I just love how they they really present him as him in his own time, in his mm. own little capsule, and they tell it chronologically, and they and, and they tell me lots of stuff that I didn't know. I mean, it's just frankly informative, and I feel like most of those details are well-presented. It's just like a well-made thing that I care about. Um, and, and and I wasn't sure if they were going to do it, but they, they do at the end subtly bring him into the world of that we, that, that we as the viewers live in. Mm. Um, and I, the experience I just had is like, you know, gosh, like it's not Mr. Rogers that is out of touch with our world. It's like our our world has become so ridiculous mm. um, that there isn't a place for him in it. Yeah. Um, which just which just had the power that I think it was supposed to have. Hmm. Um, and I and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I I just like um, 
again, like, you know, as I, you know, wax pontificate about the information <laughs> age, I mean, there's so much out there that it's, it's always refreshing to have someone patiently tell me a small story about a person. Um, and the other, the other thing is like, just as subject matter, like Fred Rogers seems to be, to genuinely care about helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a special and important thing in yeah. the world. Um, you know, like even if I just look laterally at, at all kinds of things in the you know like that are going on in our world, like it, it's hard to find someone that you know again from a different time that's like yeah you know I'm just gonna slowly daily on a regular basis devote myself to the to, to this goal of like helping children and making the world a better place. Yeah. Because um, I just I, like when I. There's, there's, because there's so many sexier ways to help people. You know, you can donate money to this super, like, you can save people from tsunami relief. You can, you know, like, there's always, there's like, it's just, if for me, if I can, if I can, if my muse will let me be articulate enough about it, um, like, the differences between what Fred Rogers meant to help people, which is like devotion of your life's work consistently, um, for non-sensational purposes to do good work versus like what, you know, like what doing, what helping people means today. Like, well, like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, everyone. Like, well, but this latte helps benefit farmers in Colombia. <laughs> I'm like, does it really? Do you know yeah. that? Or is that just a marketing strategy for you? And, you know, and there's just like, and for me, like, I'm going on and on, but like, even during his time period. For what it's worth, you're getting me to back down from my lower grade. Yeah, and I'll exactly. explain that in a second. <laughs> yeah. um, like the, the, the moments when, because I also think about like, well, like the moment when he, he like he presents in front of Congress essentially mm-hmm. for the funding, I was like even at that time I'm like, like you. It also made me think about how his time wasn't as different as our time, mm-hmm. and even then people were like, I mean, like why are you doing this? And he's like, well, the evidence shows, mm-hmm. you know, that children <laughs> have these particular concerns, and I was like. You know, in, in some sense, it's like, you know, the Buddha stopping the charging elephant right. with his palm or the hippie putting the flower in the gun. Mm-hmm. There's a sense that, like, well, I, the last comment I'll make, you know, like, there's a sense that, like, everyone is arguing about everything all the time in our world and none of it matters. They're just empty words. Someone says this, someone says that, they argue, nothing happens. And in the midst of that, like, an old, somewhat quirky man says, maybe we should take care of kids and make them feel safe help them feel loved maybe that'll make things better <laughs> um and i you know i was just sort of enthralled with it um certainly to contrast it to other things that are other movies that i saw as well as um even like other documentaries like it was a very respectful portrait that was honest and interesting um and it and it again like it, it didn't sensationalize anything there wasn't like let's get to the dark secret <laughs> about Mr. Rogers. Um, um, it's like, it turns out that maybe he had some troubles as a kid and he right. worked them out through puppets. Uh, you know, did he hurt the kids? We don't know. And it turns out like, yeah, he had some trouble and he turned that trouble into a beautiful world to help kids. Not unlike That's Stanley right. Spadowski yeah. in UHF, you know? <laughs> uh, can I just say, when I, so I wrote the review for it this summer. Um and I'm so cynical, naturally, my editor said, only you would walk away from a Fred Rogers documentary and simply call it fine. <laughs> uh, and, and when I was doing the homework on it as well. So I, I didn't have Fred Rogers uh, growing mm. up. I didn't really even do Sesame Street either. I kind of just like jumped right past that to G.I. Joe's and obnoxious Fox uh, Saturday morning <laughs> cartoons and stuff. 
Nice. And the way you're kind of characterizing this, like early childhood development and concern for children, I think that's actually something that I kind of zoomed past or took for granted a little bit because I was looking at this from the framework of it's another uh, hero worship documentary, mm. kind of like the Carol Spinney Big Bird documentary yeah. or the Elmo documentary. But I, I think I kind of got mixed up in that in favor or instead of kind of looking at what Fred Rogers really means in terms of caring for children and and as a as a newly anointed father like yeah. that's actually as someone who's now at karma he loves Daniel Tiger um because Daniel Tiger I, is flipping genius oh, okay so that was the funny thing I asked my sister is there anything controversial to Daniel Tiger is there something I should take into account is this a commercial uh, cash grab for the mm. Fred Rogers Foundation to make a documentary about him she stopped me dead in my tracks and said don't you dare do <laughs> any of these thoughts when talking about Fred Rogers like okay okay fine I'll just review it with the limited knowledge that I have. But to your point, I, I think there is something very uh, noble about uh, Fred Rogers as a as a thesis and as a persona and as an individual. And really, I don't know, I probably was too hard on it. And Jeremy, you're kind of selling me a way where I'd like to go back and do it again soon. So, Well, I'm glad. Nice. Um, I can't finish the show without talking about uh, the Other Side of the Wind, the Orson Welles film. And uh, Morgan Neville, director of Won't You Be My Neighbor, did the documentary that Netflix put out, um, You'll Love Me When I'm Dead, uh, that went along with this film. And I think one reason we have to talk about it, and, and hopefully maybe we'll circle back, Jeremy, so you can um, pipe in on it, but uh, we're called Extratextual, and I don't know that there's anything more extra textual of a conversation than everything with this film. Um, going through, <laughs> like, you know, decades, because uh, we have this documentary. Um, Blake, you said you read the book. Uh, we The Carp, um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it was funny. I actually was writing up about the 40th anniversary of the Warriors the other day. And uh -huh. in the middle of watching one of the featurettes about the making of it, Frank Marshall shows up because he was a producer on the Warriors oh. to say, like, well, I was down and out after the failed Orson Welles film on the side of it and went on to this. I'm like, holy shit, everybody knew. Um, everybody, yeah, it was all connected, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I unapologetically have been, you know, an Orson Welles fan. I think I've talked about on here. It's It's very cliched, but, you know, like in junior high, I was kind of on this, like, classic film kick as sort of a you know, loser film kid would be and um, picked up. I didn't know anything about Citizen Kane and like picked up. I was like, this looks weird. Um, some of these shots and, and fell in love with that. And then like dived into Orson Welles and learned more about him. Um, so when this came out, you know, I was like, this is kind of, you know, something you never thought would happen. Um, and it was really fascinating. And, and ultimately I will temper it with saying like, I watched the documentary first and then watching the actual film, I don't know that it, like, completely grabbed me as much as, like, the experience of knowing the history behind it, all the stories. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's ultimately, like, what brings sort of the richness to it, um, even though I think there's a lot uh, to kind of think about in the film itself. But for me, it kind of felt like all of this was like an excavation um, that you sort of had to sift through all these treasures to kind of find out what was going on below the surface. And that's also sort of like 
what the film itself is about. And why, why I say kind of it's so extra textual is, um, you know, uh, it's everything sort of circling it and, um, and, and to break it down a little bit, if I can try, uh, you know, it's clearly about Wells himself. Um, we have the great stand in for John Houston, um, even though however much Orson Welles said, it's not about him. It's obviously about him. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's a great stand. And uh, his struggle in the end of his career, sort of late in his career, to make the films that he wanted, and um, that's reflected in, in the character in the film. But we also get, you know, this idea of the media attention um, around him and dismissing him, um, you know, since, you know, his early films uh, didn't do as well um, after Citizen Kane. And, and all of that. But then we get this other layer of, like, in the documentary, we get Peter Bogdanovich, um, who was, like, this hot director at the time that they were making it. And we see, you know, him going from sort of, like, a small filmmaker to being more prominent as he worked on Wells' film. But now is sort of, like, later in his career, hit this sort of, like, cold spot and never, you know, kind of paid off this... Uh, potential that everybody talked about, I think, in many ways. Um, and is sort of now in that position of Wells of not having um, sort of a great film that he can that he can look to later in his career, but is still committed to Wells in a lot of way in finishing this film. So uh, I don't know, just like so many layers to what's happening here, I think is really fascinating. And I, I've heard some people don't really like the documentary or didn't think a lot of it, but I liked personally, the style um, of sort of going after like F for fake um, of Wells own work of sort of. Yeah, this, I thought that, too. Yeah, this sort of like we can't ultimately kind of know the whole story. So it, it's kind of presented in this very theatrical way um, of, you know, Wells kind of being this illusionist as well. And and talking about this in sort of this magical way of um building up the myth that I think Wells often did himself. And one of my favorite things in watching this documentary, which I've never seen is him sort of in front of, I think it was like in France, this French press. And they're sort of asking him these, you know, um, uh, very cinematic questions and, uh, and him, um, you know, enjoying all the attention and, and again, building up sort of like his own myth and his own work, and what he's going to do. Uh, and I, I don't think I got to really see him in that mode as he's older before um, in footage like that. And like sort of being like a giddy film school boy, um, being able to to watch all that, I think was really fun. Um, to your to your, the giddy film school boy, I literally when I was asked to review this movie, I actually was like close to hyperventilating myself <laughs> because it's like th- this is before we kind of get into the the textual analysis like the extra textual analysis the yeah. fact that we are getting a completed attempt as they mm-hmm. put it themselves of this long gestating project the fact that netflix is so in debt that they were like screw it let's just spend the money anyways to get a orson welles movie right, to up our it. hipster cred it is just so immeasurably uh cool to me Mm-hmm. And it does kind of feel like a privilege, like to see this thing, this thing, and see it actually come to 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 fruition. And I actually, I really, I'm not 
making excuses or trying to fawn at the altar of of Orson Welles. I understand that the pacing and abstract structure is a little bit much for some people, but I also think it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I think it's got a lot of verve and snap and a lot of things to say about, you know, artistic decline in Hollywood, modern Hollywood for that matter, that still kind of reads true for a lot of critics. I love that you pointed out the cold spot for Peter Bogdanovich. Um, the So... I preferred the book. All right, let, let me rank this here really quickly. <laughs> so there's the Josh Karp book, and then there's the the Neville documentary. Mm-hmm. Both kind of provide really cool insights. I love that Alan Cumming framework because that was yeah. so effervescent, as you kind of suggested. But for what it's worth, the Karp book I would recommend a little bit more so, just because mm-hmm. some of the anecdotes are a little bit funnier and some of the context is a little funnier. Yeah. Like um, when colleagues were like, "Well, Orson Welles is a dirty old man filming his <laughs> wife naked in a bathroom." Like, no, no. According to the book, that was her idea because she wanted to make him look hip, like all mm-hmm. the young directors. Yeah. Or there are these really funny anecdotes about Welles being like seeing himself on TV and saying, good Lord, I've gotten fat. It's time for me to go on a shrimp diet, which is just insane to me, by the way. Um, so like there's a little bit, um, there's kind of a wit and quotability to the book that I, I slightly Mm. preferred because I, I'm just a sucker for like the Peter Biskin gossip school of like, um, filmmaking. And this is clearly one of the most like famous Hollywood, uh, urban legends of all time and the fact that it actually existed was really cool but when it came to the final product um it took a little adjusting it Mm -hmm. took a little like uh, trying to get a sense of the pacing and what he was going for because you realize oh right this is a guy who is filming this movie in bits and pieces over numerous years but that's kind of the cool thing the fact that he could bluff a story yeah out of thin air in the editing room from what i've read about wells before and uh eli back me up here or Mm -hmm. or correct me he was kind of like a consummate bullshit artist the best yep. in hollywood by a lot of measures he's the kind of person who could spin a story together in five seconds get funding then get bored or lost or lose the funding instantaneously <laughs> and then go on to the next project with the same amount of like vigor and enthusiasm and mm-hmm. um, the fact that he held on to this so long clearly was a sign that he needed to prove that he still was the the auteur kid because didn't this come amidst him getting a lifetime achievement award at the Oscars, which is kind of like a quiet snub for him because he was thinking, I'm not dead yet. I'm only 50. I yeah. still have movies I'd like to make. And there's something so um, like unavoidable in this telling of a story about, you know, an older director in Hollywood decay who's kind of getting his life force sucked up from him, from the press, from the media, uh, from this young director, Bogdanovich, who quite literally it sounds like was doing this in real life by kind of mm-hmm. being a hanger honored Orson, but also was one of Orson's trusted aides and would write smear pieces for him in trade publications, which is crazy to me. Um, yeah. It sounds I, like I, they had quite the relationship. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what did I do wrong? Daddy, by the way, is one of my favorite lines from <laughs> this yeah. past year. Like it is just so uh, snarky, mm-hmm. but like it was funny it was surreal it's weird it's fast paced he also has the gift of editing and shooting in a way that most directors don't even have the courage to try and do there's a lot of meat and potatoes filmmaking out there meanwhile Orson Welles is like I'm gonna do an Antonioni style parody of like Zabriskie Point that outdoes that and make it kind of you know look as dreadfully stylish as you think it actually is yeah um 
But the thing is, he actually makes a movie like that and makes it look good. He switches around from footage, and mind you, that's a function of the editing and just trying to grasp onto a style. Mm-hmm. But that's the the Wells enthusiasm for the shot that like is just so infectious once you kind of get into the groove of Other Side of the Wind. Um, even if we are, even if we ignore the fact that it's a miracle that it's been produced, it is still so totally watchable and like still quite relevant in terms of a Hollywood gossip story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a few things to point out. I mean, the editing is sort of like mind boggling and and switching between those film stocks and, uh, and moments to sort of like pull out. And however much I was sort of like overwhelmed, um, by the film itself, you know, and, and all those things happening all the time. Uh, it, it did almost feel like you, you did have to, you would have to like watch it a few times to zero in on, on sort of what he was doing mm-hmm. and, and the subtext of what's happening between all these characters and who they are. I think it just took a while to sort of latch on to who you're supposed to be paying attention to and, um, and what their sort of role is in this whole film. Um, and also I think I admire a lot and, and seeing this in the documentary too, uh, for Jeremy and I working on films together, like we very much work in this sort of guerrilla style of like run and gun shooting, which <laughs> is not always like the, what we want to have happen, but, yeah. um, you know, do you guys call yourself Corman and Wells when no one's listening? <laughs> I, I we have never done such no, a thing. Yeah. I, I condone it and encourage it, please. <laughs> Okay, uh, we'll just bring you on set to do that for us. Yeah. You're like, man, I'll man, get you past really? the gates and I'll bribe the guard. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, and, you know, I mean, very much. Actually, this goes back to um, Blake and I were in grad school together, and for my thesis, mm-hmm. I did uh, not a comparison, but I I shot a lot of things um, quickly, and uh, some of it improvised and turned it into this feature length film, and sort of reminded me of piecing things together uh, in this sort of way and not having, well, it sounded like he did have much more of a plan than I did, but um, trying to make it work. And mine did not work. People watch it and it doesn't make sense. Um, and, time and travel, a little, little that, tufts of grass at the end. That's my conceit that it's time, it's time travel. travel pulls it together. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just exciting for me to see somebody who I had so looked up to, like Orson Welles, and how thoughtful he was, um, and how he's known for like the way that he uh, sets up his shots to have so much going on on the different planes, and um, um, with the actors and the narrative, all kind of tying together, and then to see him in this mode later in his life of like you know doing a shot reverse shot you know, where like one angle is shot like years apart in a different country. And in the film, you don't notice, you can't tell. Um, and, and for him to sort of like keep that in his mind um, all at once as he's trying to put this together. And like we said, this is an attempt. So who knows exactly how it would have turned out um, if it was like this. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, oh, no, go right ahead. Uh, one of the things that Eli and I do a lot now, mm-hmm. in, in addition to like making films and talking about films and our other jobs and our lives and kids stuff, um, <laughs> is like uh, like teaching people how to do film, mm-hmm. um, which, which is a lot of like telling people no um, or essentially <laughs> having like the you can't handle the truth speech yeah, yeah. and the reason why i mention that is because like 
you know, when we talk about like even doing like documentaries or short film projects, people are like, well, I'm going to get a, a you know film and we got you got a camera person, and I'm like, yeah, like that's just that's a tiny part of what making yeah, a film yeah. is about. Yeah. Like, when making a film is telling a story, mm-hmm. um, and and even whether that's a documentary or a, a narrative film, like the hard work, like the thing that makes it interesting is the story that you tell, mm-hmm. and, and and that writing can take various kinds of forms, um, but it, it is its own unique skill, independent yeah. of cinematography photography and audio recording and editing and acting and all those other sorts of things and it seems clear that like that's the skill that Orson Welles had mm-hmm. you know like and, and and putting together a story you know across years independent of all these sort of different things that it really hones in on like what what his genius was yeah um and it's just it, it always I mean there's just been a number of times in the past year or so when someone has come to Eli and I and they're like oh yeah I want to do this project and we're kind of like, well, I'm like, do you have any idea what, <laughs> what goes into that? Yeah, like yeah. what telling that kind of story entails? It, mm-hmm. it, it entails a metric squared buttload yeah. of preparation and work to come up with a compelling story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know, and so it's it's always remarkable to. I mean, I think people that like differentiate themselves uh, at masters of storytelling, like Orson Welles. I mean. Just imagine like what Orson Welles would do with Instagram, you know, yeah, like yeah. he could have like he could tell you a phenomenal story in like seven panes or something mm-hmm. like that. You know? Sponsored by Paul Maison Wine. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I but I love what you're kind of getting at, too, because other side of the wind was like this reminder that even if the individual pieces don't make sense, you kind of imagine Wells had all of this in his head ready to expunge over mm-hmm. the course of several years because he was boundless in his creativity but he also could kind of see the full picture in a way that maybe didn't make sense to people but yeah. it could get them so jazzed up into doing it with them it's like it's like creating art or writing you can kind of see the big picture yeah and then you can do the outlining and then you tinker and then you tinker and tinker and tinker in the case of wells it sounded like he was a perpetual tinkerer and was mm-hmm. never quite done or satisfied with being done with working because he enjoyed the thrill of working and kind of shaping the stuff together um and that's like you know there's a secret part of me that's like what if we could get the hundred hours of footage just continually continuously put together for other side of the wind and make it a stream <laughs> of consciousness last hurrah right. but at the same time um Morosky, bob Morosky, who who chopped this cut together who's like i think he works for sam raimi hmm. uh, and some other big names managed to actually kind of see the the picture in a way that almost makes sense, at least from a thematic structural point. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that's like, you ever hear the story that, um, Sophia Coppola's screenplay for Lost in Translation is only something like 30 pages Mm -hmm. and she padded it with really strong imagery and things like that. I could see that. And the case, yeah. And in the case of Wells and other side of the wind, I could totally see him saying it's a big idea about a director who's <laughs> going through his birthday and having a crisis. And I'm like, I bet he knows enough about the scene to be able to pad that out pretty successfully. Mm-hmm. Like, according to the cart book that, you know, that scene where Paul Mazursky is yelling at the uh, other guy at the party. That yeah. was the product of like eight hours of just getting them drunk until they were drunk <laughs> and say something so volatile at each other that Orson got what he wanted, because that's the joy of him. He just wanted mm. to work to get something fun to shoot. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the tree to this. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's also fascinating that, you know, he for all of his bluster that we sort of see in the documentary and kind of yeah. hear around that, like how great this was going to be and 
Um, and also that it's, you know, not about him. And he's just kind of telling the story that like in the end, seeing the film, it's quite self-effacing and sort of, you know, yeah. very sad. I mean, he commits suicide, uh, this character. And so, I, I mean, that just sort of adds to this whole myth of like, maybe he didn't want this out there after all, or like, you know, sort of only half yeah. of him wanted it out there yeah. um, in the end, even though he did want to tell this very personal story. Um, and, and it also was sort of like, and again, I'm not comparing myself to Orson Welles in any way, but I've sort of been in that. You pos- brought it up. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Multiple times I bring it up, but I don't mean that. Um, but I've been like on sets where I can kind of sense that like, you know, uh, I've sort of known for like being like, just move your hand a li- like half an inch to the left, and I need you to hold it near your face, and like, it, listen, it's gonna look good when we fin- when we get the shot. And people <laughs> are like, I don't know what you're doing, um, and, and I'm not saying it always turns out, but like that sense of like having people sort of behind you and working with you, and then at that same moment being like, they probably think you're crazy. Um, or this is, this is stupid, but like the fun of that experience. And I think that's really what, uh, the documentary got to capture as well. Um, that those people were working with him because they knew what a genius he was and what they were sort of learning from it. Um, you know, a a side story to that from the the book, Gary Graver, Mm -hmm. who shot the movie, it sounded like. Uh, Wells picked him up from like grindhouse pe- uh, features and like dirty movies and stuff like that. But Graver's like, hell yeah, I want to work for Orson Wells. He worked for Wells, um, for you know, nonstop, you know, 25 yeah. hours a day for years to the point where Orson's work got him so excited and committed that that actually dissolved Graver's marriage. Mm. But that's just the kind of personality Wells was. It was magnetic and that you did want to be around him, even though you knew he didn't have any money. It's (laughs) like the joke of he would throw parties for people to raise money and wouldn't get any money, but people just wanted to go anyways to say, I met Orson Wells. Mm. It's like, that is the aura. Yeah. And I would say another story in that, um, documentary about i think you you kind of referenced it the lifetime achievement and just like one of the saddest moments that he was so fired up to say like you know i have this chance for hollywood to sort of recognize me and this is where of course they're going to give me the money to complete this film that's going to be great and then like nothing nobody acknowledge it nobody give him money to finish it and how like devastating that must have been it like made me think like I, if that happened now, like I will give you, like, let's crowd. Like, yeah, this, just, you just know? imagine like, the Kickstarter campaign <laughs> yeah, for yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, it was sort of sad and exciting at the same time. Um, well, I have yeah. like a, this is a totally offbeat comment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, uh, one of the, one of the secret joys that I like, I hold, um, in my, in my heart, which I, I, I which I hope someday, Blake, you also share. It's because I'm a parent, and mm-hmm. I realized that like my first contact, my, my child's first contact with Orson Welles is his voicing of Unicron in the Transformers, <laughs> and his first contact with John Huston is his voicing of Gandalf in the Rankin and Bass Hobbit. <laughs> like, just imagine, like how their minds will mm. be blown when they're like, "Oh yeah, by the way, uh, he also made an amazing, like several amazing life-changing films too." And he's like, "That guy." Yeah. I mean, just like the, the whole world of, 
um, you know, like a whole generation of these of, of early cinema that mm-hmm. like that my kids will eventually get to discover in as entirely new in their lives. Yeah. Um, it's just exciting. Oh, to he me. made the thing that's considered the greatest film of all time. Like one of yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Top, uh, was you know what's crazy? I'm pretty sure my intro to him was the critic with John Lovitz and the parody <laughs> of like the drunken champagne ants. What luck! There's a French fry stuck in my beard. <laughs> or we're talking about peas full of green penis, uh, which is still so dumb and funny to me. But yeah, it was a good start. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of have a sense of humor about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I think we are probably getting to the point, um, hitting the time where we probably need to wrap this up. Because we're definitely going to split this one into two. Yeah, we're also probably splitting this into two. Um, I mean, I do kind of want to throw out some other favorites just so, like, I feel like they're acknowledged. Um, sometimes some of these we have talked about already on our show. Um, so you can go back and listen to some of those, like we were talking about, spent a lot of time on Annihilation. Um earlier uh in 2018 um and we just did an episode on spider-man and widows yeah um which jeremy and i at least really enjoyed uh uh, widows um another one i just wanted to throw out that kind of snuck up on me was hereditary and i've sort of mentioned on this show that i have slowly the last couple years allowed myself to be like oh i might be a horror fan Um, but there's so few good horror films, um, that I really like. Uh, and I had heard great things about Hereditary, um, but I also heard like, well, it's more of like a family drama. It's not really like horror, um, exactly. But then like watching, I was like, this is a horror film. In Um, a world. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) like it's got scary music. It's trying to be a horror. And then by the end, definitely. Um, but I think what. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, which I guess is maybe because it's quite spoilery, is the thing that happens maybe a third of the way into the film with the daughter. Um, And I think it's the moment... I I watched this alone when my wife was out of town because I don't think she would have wanted to watch it. Um, And it it was sort of later at night, and I was just... That's how I watched it. Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Like, my whole Mm -hmm. childhood gone because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't sleep Um, again. And and I literally for like the next fifteen minutes after this moment, I don't think Jeremy has seen it. I haven't seen it. Um, but you spoil. It, I mean, spoil it. I don't it, care. It was like I was just like that. That didn't happen. There's there's some narrative yeah, no. conceit in this that that they're gonna say like this is uh you know like um unreliable narrator or something. They're gonna go back. This this didn't. And, and it's something you know like I put in the back of my mind to use sometime. But the great like misdirection that you get that you are so worried about getting her to the hospital for like her her breathing problem that like out of the blue there's like something much more horrible that happens <laughs> that i was yeah. just like completely stunned and and i and i'm impressed with the rest of the film but just for like that factor um i just like couldn't believe it. i was like isn't she like one of the main characters i don't <laughs> know what's happening here you're making me really uh, interested because i've always no. i've always loved that particular like just, just throw them, like they, they're worried about getting to their you know they're getting to their concert at the kids school so they can win their hearts back and they just like run over by a truck you yeah. know like like what do you do with the rest of the movie you yeah know? and also the factor that it, it, it deliberately doesn't show you what happens specifically like the result 
And then I was like, oh, I guess they're also not going to show it. And then they show you and you're like, yeah. oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, can, can I just say, uh, Eli, without hopefully this isn't too big of a spoiler for Jeremy, but um, I like to tweet currently watching for whatever movie I'm watching. Occasionally I get comments back and I can always talk to people yeah. when I first watched Hereditary finally. Um, the first response I got from some wise ass was don't lose your head. <laughs> uh, well, just leave it there. Uh, yeah, nice, but no, nice. Hereditary I mean, we spoil was... it for all the audience all the time. We, we spoil more. Oh. Yeah, yeah. oh my God. No, uh, Hereditary, I'll just say um, I'm really easy on horror in terms <laughs> of like, I'm a mark. I will uh, scare easily. Yeah. yeah. This is the movie that made me scream out loud in my house <laughs> next to my wife. And she's like, you're a wimp. Um, <laughs> nice. So yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. great. It's absolutely fabulous and, and terrifying. Yeah. And again, it kind of took kind of like Black Klansman. It took me a while to be like when it became time for me to kind of put together like a list. I was like not thinking to put that on my list. I was like, oh, actually, yeah, that probably is in my yeah. top 10 um, mm. because of the way that, you know, it affected me. And, and ultimately, I think it is like three or four different genres of horror films kind of stuck into one. Um, but I think they are all handled deftly enough that they are interesting and i know a lot of people don't like the ending the very end exactly and think it's a little over the top i don't know oh, dude love it hail payment anyway yeah, yeah yeah i like it um although i don't know about like how tony collette ends up was a little confusing to me but um but still i i i kind of like how weird it went after all in the end because most films i think they go for like the gore and the craziness, but not like the weirdness that that film goes for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you get a chance, a, a co-writer, a former co-writer. Well, yeah, I haven't, I haven't written with her in a while. Sasha mm -hmm. Geffen wrote this piece about uh, hereditary and transgender qualities in the mm -hmm. film, uh, specifically like fear of the female form versus preference for like the strong male form. Totally good, heady stuff. I would huh. seek it out if you can. Um, and definitely check it out. It opens up a new light in the movie that it makes it even stronger in my mind yeah yeah uh, i mean i feel obligated i mean uh, we haven't talked at all about black panther mm -hmm. um which i you know i don't want it to get into a big discussion about it but i feel yeah. like um it has to be mentioned in any um end of the year sort of. uh, yeah, yeah i mean and i say have to because i mean uh you know if i mean audiences know where i'm going with this um uh if the only marvel movie we had in 2018 was that giant seeming pile of garbage infinity war i would say that they the mcu is destroyed however in the same year <laughs> um we have black panther which i mean i i, I gush about it for a show mm -hmm. i mean just just in, like it it is um like so many people i know that only have like a tangential interest in comic book films mm -hmm. uh saw it and loved it. I mean, th mm -hmm. there's just like a, a universal appeal of the film that, um, is like, is it undeniably marks it as one of these like really, really great mm -hmm. important movies in history. And it's also like, I, I mean, I'm sure I, I, I get down on the MCU a lot, but, um, like I, I mean, I've probably seen it like four or five times. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only other one I've seen more than that is original Iron Man. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just like, I, uh, you know, it, it 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 doesn't do anything in particular, like any moments or scenes that I feel like are, oh my God, you know, this is like, do you remember when thing X mm -hmm. happens? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like going into the way the, like the world of superheroes looks from the perspective of this film. It's just like them, like, mm -hmm. like one of the best, um, 
journeys into the world. The, mm. My favorite, of course, is the original Iron Man, but um, second to that is this one. Like, you know, if I, when I eventually make my, like, best of MCU, you know, it's probably like, <laughs> yeah, this is like a, the original Iron Man, you know, Black Panther, mm. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It may be like a few minutes of the original um, Captain. Okay. Yeah, and there's like, you know, I mean, there's some, I mean, I don't mean to be, but it's, um, like, I, I feel like I would have been talking about it a lot more had I not been so grumpied about um, Infinity War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one I sort of, like, forget about a little bit. I think um, for some of the other work for my job and podcasts, the other podcast Jeremy and I help with, I feel, like, almost obligated to put it high on a list. And ultimately, I was kind of like, it didn't quite have that effect. I don't know that I normally put superhero films on my list anyways um not like against rule but i don't know that they've stood out that much uh but i yeah i think the sort of cultural significance of that film isn't it the the top grossing film of the year am i right in saying that america in america Uh, infinity war i want to say made like a billion and a half worldwide or two billion or something absurd like that so Yeah, I think um, domestic. These comic book movies, yeah. you guys, we got to get in on them. While yeah, they're I hear hot. they're yeah. popular. I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think the time is. I think that yeah, the time is done. Like I, I don't think. I think we're it'll only be decline going forward. Aquaman was huge. I don't know. I, I, I look forward to Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, you yeah. know, I, the, I, I hope that it. I hope that like, I mean, I really have. I made this. I've, I've advocated this before. I really hope and think that the 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 comic book movies will follow the same form or similar form to the comic books themselves. Mm. Like they'll, they'll play out these sort of like, like original like stories. stories and then we'll eventually have more movies like uh, Logan mm-hmm. um, where you have, you know, cause it, like from that stuff comes like uh, dark horse comics um, and DC vertigo where you vertigo, see yeah. like um, all these far darker, more interesting stories, you know, and I hope, I hope they sort of turn that over and we get to see that. Mm. Cause like I'm, I'm I'm done with the guy saving the day. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mar- you know, the and like, like Marvel like, formula is is very stale at this point. Yeah, I mean, like I, I just showed my kids the the first Brian Singer um, X Men the other mm-hmm. day, and like they loved it. Yeah, and I was like, this guy's pretty good. And and I remember when like my mind was blown in like 1990, whatever. When I was like, oh my god, like an X Men movie like in the theaters because it was <laughs> it was like mainly comic books. Like action figures and like the animated Saturday TV show where mm-hmm. they always show the mutant virus series and the Dark Phoenix saga, like you know, yeah. ad nauseum. Um, We're in uh, a very different time now. Yeah, very yeah. different time. Now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's 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 good. Uh, I think we're, we're sort of wrapping. I at some point would like to talk about. Sorry to bother you. I think that was high on your list too, Blake. Um, I oh, best score of the year. Yeah. Yeah, and some of the funniest jokes, but uh, no, believe me, that I have a list right now with seventy movies. I'm just double checking seventy two yeah. movies ranking from five to one star rankings. And the fact is, I only truly hated like five things. There was a lot of good stuff last year. Yeah, it was a very good. Um, year, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's things that, and this is sort even of... Gotti. I'm warming up to his comedy. <laughs> <It's> so. Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, it's rare that I sort of usually do this sort of catch up at the end of the year, or the very beginning of the next year. Yeah. And, um, and and usually by the time I get to them, I'm like, well, I, I sort of exhausted like what I want to see. And this year I'm still like, ah, as we do this show, there's like there's still things that 
could pop into my top 10 that I have not had a chance to see. Um, like, can you ever forgive me? Uh, I hear wonderful things and it sounds like I will, uh, really like that. Um, I also like had this weird experience this year where movies I was excited about, um, and thought I would really like, and, and sort of did and didn't. Uh, I think the two are Mandy and Suspiria where like, the first half, I'm like, yep, I'm totally on board. This, I'm going to love this. This is going to be the best. And then by like the end, the second, I'm like, eh, not sure how I feel about that. And it, it's not like weird or extreme exactly. I just don't know that they really paid off those moments as much as I wanted to. Um, but I, I would agree on one and disagree on the other. Susperia yeah. lost me in a big way near yeah. the end, um, mm-hmm. where I was like, maybe I should compliment the lighting. Uh, like when naked women are riding around dancing, I wanted to like call the set and say, "You can all go home. This is so not necessary." Yeah. Um, yeah. I at mean, the same for, time, for I wouldn't say it's subtlety in the first half, but like sort no. of subtlety in like what mood, it was trying to yeah and, and kind An of atmosphere. what it's what it's saying and then it just sort of like oh this yeah this is what it is um but, mandy on the yeah. other hand though i think goes like full nar black metal cosmos in a mm-hmm. in a way that i um that i kind of dug like i yeah. think i think it had the courage of its convictions for the mm-hmm. most part i didn't lose it because it felt like a fair escalation i mean a uh, nicholas cage chainsaw battle fan service or not i'm glad i saw it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean there's elements of mandy that i like love and some of those crazy parts i love too um but i i don't and i i think i didn't i knew that there wasn't going to be like a payoff in a traditional sense you know sort of like wrapping things up in any way but i don't think the payoff was still what i was really thinking or as much as i was interested in um, I also think I have to revisit Isle of Dogs. I'm usually really high on Wes Anderson. Um, I remember really enjoying it in the theater, but I think I'd have to kind of go back and look at that. Um, I'm also got to see Damien Chazelle in person um, speak this year and was even more impressed um, with him and kind of thought he was sort of a one note sort of musical guy. Um, <laughs> but I think if first man wasn't completely successful, I think he's really trying for something else. And, uh, ultimately I'd really admire that film maybe more than I, um, totally like it or put it on that list. But I think he 100% agree. It it was an approach that I didn't understand, but I respected. Um, so I think he's still going to do really interesting, fascinating things. And, And when I saw him in person, you know, he was talking about liking, like, his approach to musicals was sort of um, experimental films and like French New Wave and documentaries. And um, he said, you know, like the next thing he might want to do is like a documentary. And I was just like confused sort of um, by from like what I've seen of him before and was pleasantly surprised by like Whiplash. So he's somebody I, I really have my eye mm-hmm. on and I hope he, he keeps sort of getting these opportunities to, to do what he wants. Um, this is the the last one that I'll mention. Yeah. Um, which I, I sort of have to because of my oldest son Ethan is uh, The Incredibles two. Mm. Um, one because like they're for like The Incredibles is his absolute favorite movie. Mm. Um, I also think it is 
near perfect and amazing. <laughs> um, and I've seen it many, I mean, hmm. 20, 30 times. Um, so, I mean, it, it yeah, is yeah. like, it, it's like, you know, on the shelf that contains like three movies in our house, <laughs> you know, um, it's like the Lego movie, Incredibles. Um, and, uh, uh, the reason why I want to mention it, there's two things that were fun for me about it. Yeah. One, um, Almost all, like probably the first thing I ever Googled for my eldest son was mm-hmm. when The Incredibles 2 is coming out, <laughs> which was like, mm-hmm. when I Googled it, never. You know, <laughs> he, and, and like every six happen. months, he would be like, like so did they make an Incredibles 2 yet? Yeah. So as soon as they announced it, he was like, mine was blown. So I was just happy that they made it and that it was good. Mm-hmm. The other thing is like, you can also track like how the world is different, like in terms of like how what how the world reacted to Incredibles one, and yeah. how the world reacted to Incredibles two. Mm. Um, Incredibles two is not as good, I think, as mm-hmm. Incredibles one, but it it does it's give really us good. more. Like yeah. there's more Edna, there's more identity conflict, there's more all kinds of stuff in there, um, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I think. Like Toy Story is like one of the few like Toy Story and Spider Man are the two examples I always give. Mm-hmm. Where the second one I think is actually better than the first one. Like Spider Man Two, Sam Raimi's I think is clearly the superior yeah. one in that series and better than the first one. Um, and, uh, and same with Toy Story. Like Toy Story Two is I think the best of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Toy Story is good. Toy Story Two I think is better. Um, so I mean, it, it was I. There have been like I think very few animated films ever mm-hmm. where like the second one is stand up. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I, you know, like I, I was really into, I, I just, I won't discourse on long. Like I was really into all of the like meta, uh, talking about the consumption of media, hypnotism right, sorts right. of stuff in there. Um, cause it, it, it was a metaphor for, you know, again, in, in the same way that, um, first reform sort of made me or allowed me to like re-encounter, a lot of the most salient arguments about our relationship to the environment in a sea of ideas about it. Uh, Incredibles 2 allowed me to encounter uh, the ways in which media are affecting my life and our lives in sort of a new way by making the most salient points in a sea of ideas Um, in the way that that was that wasn't a, the biggest topic in the in the original Incredibles, mm-hmm. um, and it's still also there. The, this is the last thing I'll mention. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that tonight. Um, uh, I like the um, fact that Incredibles Two is ultimately a play about like doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately a story about that, which I just always appreciate because it's what I think most people are trying to do, and it's really hard to figure out. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Th- only quick thing I'll say about Incredibles 2 is um, I think we at least took I went with my wife and my two sons and I remember having like a blast in the theater and I was like this is so fun to see it with them and they were not having the same experience I think and this might be just like a thing with my kids or something but it was like overwhelming sort of like visuals and stuff action in in a large screen like that so i think that was too much so we'll have to rewatch it we haven't rewatched it on a smaller screen so they can kind of like grasp it i was gonna say nieces and nephews were having a little difficulty with the uh strobe lighting stuff but that's just one detail one detail Uh, yeah i i was i was unable to successfully explain to my six-year-old exactly who the bad guy was yeah right (laughs) but they got him it's like but it wasn't him he's being controlled and he's like by who and how <laughs> with the mask he's like what mask wait, wait, what part yeah, yeah. And so um and, and then my my wife went about sort of like 
deconstructing the uh, gender roles yeah. in the film and for however much people were like, yeah, it's about... Um, this is incredible this time. That like, doesn't hold up. Uh, yeah, it did. and so that sort of like tarnished it a but little bit. But also Void, me. such a yeah. great character. Yeah, yeah. Void is a good character, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I am excited about revisiting that too. I, I've only seen it seen it once. Um, anything else, Blake, uh, before we go that you're like, I have to recommend this film to our audience? Oh, goodness. Too many to mention. I'll just say the children's sequel I liked this last year is Paddington 2. Mm. Uh, Radical kindness in a pink prison suit key. Um, I... um, The Death of Stalin and Vice, by the way, I don't think I've laughed any harder Mm. at any movies than I had at those two movies. Did you guys see either of those? We haven't. Do you you feel Um, like Vice... Like certain even critics or um, viewers just aren't getting that it's so uh, funny. Not, not, not getting. Just okay. wildly differing on there. Yeah. There's a certain component of like a lot of the writers that I uh, read are pretty sharp uh, folk who've paid attention to political discourse over the last twenty years. They did not forget like the the sins of the Bush era, mm-hmm. um, and there's a certain why uh why film the life of a Mm. monster why remind us in coarse fashion about his atrocities Mm -hmm. and there's a part of me that's like because the majority of the population didn't give a shit didn't notice and doesn't remember I, i i do think there's a certain degree of amnesia so I don't know i'm probably a spiteful person but at a certain point in the middle of the movie um Christian Bale walks up in the middle of a a campaign speech, uh, sweating down to his armpits, and he very politely says to his wife, I don't want anyone to panic, but I think I need to go to the hospital now. And it's uh, (laughs) the first of what becomes a running gag about Cheney's many heart attacks and maybe... Maybe I'm a darker person than I realize, but I laugh so hard that I embarrassed the hell out of the editor in chief of Consequences Sound who was sitting next to me. So I was like, "Well, I liked it." Uh, yeah, he definitely. Um, yeah, left in it. I mean, yeah. it's just like little little surprise. I'm a lover of surprise and comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, even Death of Stalin, which you know manages to take the most one of the most gallo uh, gallows periods of modern. Uh, political history and still makes me cry laughing at a joke when uh, Stalin's son screams at a bald man that you're not even a person, you're a testicle, uh, <laughs> which I just didn't, I did foresee coming. And I, was, <laughs> I, I mean, how can you? <laughs> yeah, I love surprise in comedy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about them, but I think films like The Rider or Burning, I anticipate also really liking and also could be high on my list and um i do highly recommend you were never really here i i didn't think i would like it and um i think that that film also took me on uh, a weird journey um that i really identified with with sort of the the mood and style of it um really fascinating and apparently you know joaquin phoenix can do no wrong these days (laughs) yeah um Great. Uh, we're going to wrap things up here, but I really want to thank Blake for being on our show yeah. and being the one that has seen the most films um, oh, my and can talk expertly on um, on perspectives on them. So 
Uh, we really like what you brought to the show and, and appreciate it. Yeah. If people wanted Thank to you. follow you or read um, more of your work, well, where can they do that? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Blake Goebel, uh, Twitter, Ecstasy of Goebel, which is a parody on Ecstasy of Gold by Ennio Morricone. That's mm. nerd stuff right there. <laughs> and uh, you can find me, Metacritic, Rotten Tomatoes, and of course, uh, Consequence of Sound, uh, writing reviews on the regular. Great. So, yeah, give us any feedback out there if you want to tell us about your picks for favorite films or um, any comments on what we said. And uh, thanks for listening.